Hey, everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and, of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And if my voice sounds a little hoarse, it's because, and Sean was making hoarse noises every time I said that, like, um, it's because we have crazy fires here in um, Los Angeles slash Southern, actually all of California, not even just Southern California. Um, and even though we have our air purifier going, it just starts to like bother me. Um, so that's kind of why that's happening, but we're doing our best to stay safe. We're not going, I'm not like working out outside or anything, guys, don't worry. Um, we're staying inside with like air filters on, but it just, you know, it's in, it's everywhere. Like if I have to go do laundry or go get the mail, it's like I have to walk out into the smoke that is happening. Um, if any of you are affected by this, I'm so sorry. Please stay safe. Please evacuate if they're telling you to. Um, yeah, 2020, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, but yeah, things are good here. How are things with you? Um, I'm trying to think of what's even going on with me. Um, we went to Big Bear last weekend, which was nice to get out of town a little bit and get away from L.A. So it was also like 100 degrees in Santa Monica. Um, and I'm almost finished with my book, uh, the first rough draft, obviously. Then my editor goes through it. There's like, you know, so many rounds of edits and I get to do the audiobook and all that good stuff. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm excited. It's a good it's a good week. This week's going to be a good week. Also, it's a four day week, which is awesome. Um, anyway, I have. Eleven questions, double checking, I have eleven. Um, so we'll just get into those. And if any of you are new, welcome. Um, the way that you can ask questions is to ask them um, or to put them into the community tab on my YouTube channel. So you go over to the podcast YouTube channel, which is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. Um, and this is where AKA is also housed. And when you hit the, you know, the basic channel page, then you go to community and you'll see every Monday I ask you for your questions. Um, so you can ask them there. Next week will be a little bit different because we have a special guest coming in. It'll be my first guest on the podcast. Um, so you can ask us both anything. Um, so I will post that um, probably on like Sunday because I think we're, she's going to come over to film on Monday. Um, anyway, let's get into these questions. That's where you ask them. I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. I don't know why YouTube doesn't allow you to filter for most thumbs ups. Uh, it's annoying. But I do my best to like look through them and try to get the ones with the most. Again, it's not perfect. And I'm sorry if yours had a shit ton of thumbs ups and you didn't get picked. Um, please, please try again. Without further ado, let's get into those questions. The first question is, Katie, is it possible to have depression, but not feel terrible? For me, I think I feel fine, but I can't seem to clean my room or take care of myself as well as I should. And I have no friends or hobbies. And on my days off from work, I spend a lot of time just staring at my walls or wasting time in other ways. But again, I feel fine, I guess. Or is that normal? Although not necessarily healthy. Um, I love this question because I think a lot of people feel this way and are concerned about like, what is it that's wrong with me? Am, is this just normal? Am I just being lazy? Um, what's happening? And there's a lot of judgment about it, we, like personal judgment that we can have about this. And the truth is that depression can, like a lot of the comments on this, we're talking about depression coming and going, which is very normal. For any of you who don't know, um, some mental illnesses are, <clears throat> excuse me, are like more chronic, meaning that they happen like you know, it's pervasive, it's through all our days, and we have symptoms all the time. Um, but then some of us have it where it comes and goes, like some of my patients will have really, really bad anxiety for a few weeks, and then uh, no anxiety. And then maybe they'll have depressive uh, symptoms, and then that'll go away. So it can kind of come and go depending on a lot of factors. Number one, our stress level, or resiliency, our ability to like cope and take care of ourselves. Number two, it could be um, you know, stressors in our life, like other things that are happening to us, that we have no control over. Um, it could be a lot of different factors. It could also be certain seasons or certain experiences we've had that like triggered a past uh, feeling, thought, event, 
um, traumatic experience, things like that. It, it can come and go for a lot of different reasons. And so when it comes to this question, you can have depression and not feel terrible. I have a video about like high, high functioning depression, which I don't even really like calling things high or low functioning because that, you know, in and of itself, seem it's almost like it's assuming that certain people have it quote unquote, like worse. And that means that they're more deserving of care. I know there's a lot of judgment about like how sick we feel. Everyone deserves care from even if we are uh, just having a tough time, you know, feeling tearful in life and like having, you know, struggling with uh, extreme symptoms of mental illness. We all deserve care. No, no one more than the other. Okay. We all deserve to feel good in our life. And so I want you to know that um, a lot of people have low grade, uh, like we call it dysthymia and that's uh, like low grade depression. Or it could be high functioning depression, meaning we just white knuckle our way through life. And I have videos about both of those. I would encourage you to hop onto YouTube and just put in Katie Morton uh, high functioning depression or Katie Morton dysthymia, which is like D-Y-S-T-H-Y-M-I-A, I think, if my brain is functioning correctly. Um, and that will help you kind of better understand. But it is it is very common for us to be able to do certain things. Like, for instance, you take care of yourself, you know, uh, or you're not able to take care of yourself as well as you sh- as you should. You don't have friends and hobbies, but you're able to get to work and you you can like do certain things. Like a lot of us can just do the bare minimum of life. And even though that's great, like we're at least able to like white knuckle it, do things. And from the outside, it can look like we're fine. Inside, we're just barely hanging on. And that means that when we're not working, we like can barely do anything. So it took all our energy to get through that week, right? And I've had patients in school feel the same way, like on the weekends or after school, it's like we'll take naps or we'll space out or we just won't want to do anything. And even like showering can feel overwhelming and feel like too much work. You know, there's a lot of things that go along with um, using all the energy just to function. And so please reach out for help. Please, um, you know, see if you can see a therapist that could be really beneficial as well as a psychiatrist if medication is something that you're willing to consider. Um, All of that could really help you. That will give you tools as well as maybe symptom reduction through medication to help you feel better. Um, not that you have to feel terrible because said not that I, but I don't feel terrible. We don't have to feel terrible to get help, but you should, you know, we all should feel, feel like we're able to take care of ourselves, you know, uh, engage with friends and have different hobbies and, and have days off work where we get to do things that we love. And I want you to be able to have that, uh, in your life. And so I think that could be getting some extra support again, nothing wrong with it. Um, all of us need support. Sometimes some of us need support all the time. I've been in and out of therapy since I was 15 and I think it's, it's really really beneficial, um, especially during this time, because the world is just, a, it's a crazy, crazy place right now. So, um, you know, getting more help is good. I think all of us could benefit from that right now. Okay, moving on to question number two. It says, hey, Katie, you know how we are supposed to set boundaries with a toxic parent? Yes, I do. So I did that with my dad, and we barely talk now, like strangers in a house. I'm sorry, um, this is hard for a lot of people. And it's very common because some toxic parents can't handle boundaries. Um, said it's easier now than before to set boundaries, but I guess the realization that I will never have a good father-daughter relationship has taken a mental toll on me. And it's just depressing to think about. It creates this emptiness inside me. I feel like I lack something and am broken. Oh, the shame spiral. I understand. Because of this, I even struggle to build healthy relationships with men. And I either tend to obsess about getting into a relationship or just avoid them completely since I'm exhausted because I, ch- uh, choose emotionally unavailable men. Very common. Do you know how to overcome this void? And how can I get rid of this belief that all men will treat me the same? Because I know there are good men out there. Love and thanks for all the help you give through your channel. Of course. This, I, I just love this question because, oh, it's so common. And unfortunately, we tend to pick people if we're, um, if we are like heterosexual and we've had a bad relationship with our father and we, we are female, um, you know, we're seeking out other men, that relationship with our father can kind of get in the way of that meaning, like to this person's point, you know, I assume all men are going to treat me poorly, or I assume it's going to be like this going to just be like my dad's. Um, and we can struggle to even feel like we can trust people. It's all very common. Um, and the same goes for other people. Like if you're looking to date someone who is the same sex as the parent that we're having issues with, that can be tricky for us. Um, I even had a friend, this is years ago, I was on the Analyze This podcast with Hannah Hart and Hannah Gelb. And um, Hannah Gelb never understood why she prefers a male therapist. And I was like, well, you know, uh, how was your relationship with your dad? And she's like, oh, it was amazing. Like, he's the one I would go to. I was like, what about your mom? And she's like, terrible. 
And I was like, of course you want to talk to a male therapist, you know, like, so those relationships permeate a lot of parts of like a lot of the parts of our life um, and how we kind of relate to people that remind us of that person. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Um, And so, okay, to get into this kind of question, first, I just want to say that I'm sorry that this is happening. But for any of you out there who are trying to set boundaries with a toxic parent or are trying to just deal with a toxic parent, it's hard. And there's going to be this period of time where we have to grieve. And I think that's kind of the, the first step in the in answering this question and offering some advice to the person who asked is that you the realization you said that I will never have a good father daughter relationship is taking a mental toll on me. And that is normal. When we're kids, we put our parents on these pedestals, we think that they can do anything, they can fix anything, they know everything, they can protect us from everything. Um, and then as we get older, they're there's a realization. And for some of us, it's, it's, you know, happens more quickly than others. But there's going to be a realization for all of us at some point that we're like, oh, I guess they don't know better. Or oh, my God, they're treating me poorly. Like this is actually emotional abuse, or this is physical abuse, or you know, we come to this realization that maybe they're not as great as we thought. And so the thing that we have to do is we have to grieve the difference between what we thought they could be, and what they're actually capable of. And that that can be hard, it can be really uncomfortable. And so I just want you to to know that it's okay to take time to grieve the loss of the father-daughter relationship that you thought you could have. And it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to try to bargain for it, thinking that like, that's why I love the using the term grief is because we do bargain sometimes. We're like, maybe if I do this just perfectly, then my dad can act in this way and then our relationship will improve. No, no, no. Us act doing and acting, you know, perfectly they have to choose. It has nothing to do with us. Yeah, sure. If we're, we're being really, really difficult and, and like purposely hurtful, that's not going to help the relationship. However, us doing things a particular way is not going to change the fact that they're like abusive or neglectful or maybe just not a good dad. Like they have to want to get better too and want to be better for us. And so, yeah, grieving that it's going to take time and it's okay to take time to do it because I think if we take the time that we need to grieve, then and only then should we try to engage in an um, intimate relationship with a, a male. I think that sometimes we need to be alone to process this without getting it, you know, tied up into the relationship that we're having with someone else. It's so common that we'll bring the baggage from one relationship into another and um, unless we resolve it first. So give yourself the time to grieve and resolve um, what's happened in the you know, the struggle that you have uh, with your father. And then let me read a little bit more here because I struggle to build healthy relationships with men. Uh huh. And I think that kind of like, uh, you said you either tend to obsess about getting into a relationship or just avoid them completely. It's that like black or white. If I'm in, I'm all the way in. And if I'm out, it, it's like, there's no, um, we need to actually have that time to have like a healthy, slow burn into a relationship. And you're just not there yet. And that's okay. Um, take your time, let yourself grieve the loss of the relationship that you wanted to have with your father, uh, coming to terms with what he's able to give and what um, what that looks like and how you can accept that. Um, and then, you know, considering what you would look for in a future partner or someone that you would want to date, um, what are things that you would want? How can we make that, uh, you know, look for people with those characteristics? How can we cultivate those types of relationships? And that's really the answer. So do you know how to overcome this void? It's just giving yourself the time to process it, to feel sad. Um, I would encourage you to get into therapy to talk about this. There's, if if you're still on lockdown wherever you are and you're not, um, or you don't have insurance, because um, that's the first way is to go in person to see a therapist. You can uh, search through insurance or get on the list. If you have socialized medicine, you can get on the list and wait like a year or whatever it, it takes to see someone. Um, but I think there's also uh, online resources such as Talkspace BetterHelp um, and I think Seven Cups also offers like licensed professionals and just finding someone who fits for you so you can talk about this. And then the last part of the question says, how do I get rid of this belief that all men will treat me the same? It's really through the healing, the healing and understanding of the relationship with your father. And some of it can come through like, because uh, once you are honest with yourself about what your father is able to give and what that looks like and whether or not you're you're okay accepting that as enough then we can sometimes see it can almost be like the blinders are pulled off and we see our parent in a whole different light. And we're like, Oh, they're, they've always been this way. Or like, this is just how they are. And it had nothing to do with me. And this is just 
the way that my father was, but like, but my friend, he's not like that. And like this other guy I dated, he wasn't actually like that either. But we have to recognize, and this is just the last little component I want to talk about, is that we have to recognize when we're attracted to certain people because they remind us of that parent, because that's comfortable. It's it's what we're used to. And I know, I know that sucks. (laughs) Sucks to be in relationships like that because we're like replaying out a really shitty relationship we already have. But being aware of it is the first step. And like, I've talked about this before, how I'd had this like string of relationships where I was putting in a lot more effort um, and the men were kind of like emotionally unavailable. And my therapist was like, you know, I'd been alone for a while. And she was like, I want you to be uncomfortable in your next relationship. I want things to move slowly. I want you to not be the most responsible person in the relationship. I want them to, you know, make effort to do stuff for you and all this stuff. And um, I was like, what? Be uncomfortable. How dare you? That sounds so rude. So terrible. But she was like, no, and and ended up being the next guy I dated was Sean. And um, I really think, first of all, it's just the way that he is. He's very different from anybody else I've ever dated. Um, but also uh, my therapist guiding me along the way to be like, no, you know, it's good that he's doing this. It's good that he's not available to you all the time. It's good that he made that effort for you. You don't owe him anything. You know, these conversations really helped me to see that I could have a different type of relationship. And that can happen to you for you, too. We just have to give ourselves time to to grieve the loss of the father-daughter relationship we wished we had, um, recognize that maybe those string of unhealthy relationships aren't what we want, noticing what we want, and allowing ourselves to be uncomfortable as we navigate these new and hopefully better and more healthy relationships. Um, okay, I hope that helps. Keep me posted. That was just a great question. Okay, question number three. Happy Thursday, Katie. Happy Thursday. It says, can you talk about indecisiveness? Hmm. Why do I have such a difficult time making decisions? Could this be part of my depression or other mental illness? 100%. More specifically, bigger life decisions like, should I go back to school? Should I take that job offer, etc.? I've made uh, decisions in the past that ended up not uh, not good for me. And I'm just, I'm left feeling kind of stuck. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this question. And indecisiveness can come from a lot of places, okay? And there's no way that I'm going to be able to identify and talk about all of them. But let me just give you kind of like, a broad view of what I believe the like root of indecisiveness is. And one of those is confidence or lack thereof. When like the person has questions that I've made decisions in the past that ended up to not being good for me. Um, when we don't believe that we are capable of making good decisions, that can make it really hard for us to feel like we can be in charge and make decisions in the future. Not to mention if we grew up, so it's so okay, c- confidence, but it kind of comes out of this, but this is, could be just a completely other one, depending on your life situation. But abuse, if we have been emotionally or physically or sexually abused in any way, neglected through life, um, a lot of uh, what abuse does that people don't talk about is it makes us think that something is wrong with us, right? We talk a lot about shame and shame is I'm bad, I'm broken, right? And so having that shame feeling does not allow for us to feel confident or like we can make decisions for ourselves, right? I mean, just think about it. If I think something's wrong with me or I'm bad, something is intrinsically like deep inside is like rotten. Why would I think that I can make good decisions? I wouldn't. And so it can come from that as well. But then when they ask, can it be part of depression or another mental illness? Yes. The two most common mental illnesses, the indecisiveness grows out of, well, I guess maybe there's three. But depression can be one um, because we are, we can feel really lethargic. We can struggle to concentrate. We can feel just not motivated, not good about ourselves. So again, back to that confidence, make it hard to make decisions. Also, any anxiety disorder. Um, and I'm going to, the third one I was kind of talking about is like OCD, which is kind of, is part of that anxiety uh, umbrella. So anxiety uh, comes along with a lot of worry, right? Generalized anxiety disorder means that we uh, have uncontrollable worry. And if we're worrying all the time, thinking all the different ways that this could go wrong and oh my God, then how are we gonna make decisions? We're not, it's gonna be really, really difficult. OCD can make us feel like we have to do things a certain way or in a certain order. And if we don't do it that way, then something terrible can happen. And that can make it really hard for us to make a decision, even if we know it's the good or better thing to do. Um, We still feel like, but I have to do this because that's what my OCD tells me. And so it can be really difficult and we can kind of battle in our brains. And there are a lot of different reasons. And I would encourage if any of you out there struggle with indecisiveness and you feel like you know where it comes from, let us know in those comments. Because like I said, there's so many and there's no way I can get through them all. But I do believe the root of it is that lack of self-confidence or like from abuse kind of stuff, the shame spiral that we can get caught in. And so 
the best way to uh, to kind of fight back against our our knee jerk reaction to be indecisive is to work on that confidence to notice the talk that we're having the self talk that's going on. What are we saying to ourselves about who we are and what we're doing? Like you said, you made decisions in the past that ended up not good for you. Okay, whatever. So we all do. Everybody makes bad decisions. But how are we going to move forward? What did we learn from those poor decisions? And then I want you to stop thinking about that because it probably, I'm guessing, you're ruminating on it, spinning it into a million different things, thinking it and overthinking it in all these different ways that isn't going to change it. Thinking and worrying and like obsessing about the past doesn't change it. All we can do is like, what would I prefer to do moving forward? What are things that I can do to make my future better? And so noticing the self-talk, using those bridge statements. I have a video about that if you want to learn more, but it's like moving the negative thoughts into a more positive light by building this bridge. So it's, we can't go from, I hate myself to, I love myself. It's more like I'm open to the possibility that I might not be as terrible as I think it's possible. Maybe I'm not sure, but maybe. Um, and so using those to kind of move it into a more positive direction. Um, yeah. And then, you know, checking your facts before you believe things that can be really helpful because thoughts are not beliefs. Thoughts are not facts. Thoughts are just thoughts. And so paying attention to those and trying to make them more positive, trying to consider all the good decisions you've made because we tend to focus on the negative because it's more of a threat. All that can be good. Um, but yeah, a lot of us struggle with indecisiveness. Back in the day, this is going to like totally date me. Uh, but um, I remember my girlfriends and I would talk about if we were dating a person that we went to Blockbuster because you go to rent a film, you just have to go in and like pick up your DVD. You go to rent the film. And if they would be like, I don't know, what do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you, if you had to do that, like a mul multiple times, we're like, it's never going to work out. <laughs> One of you needs to be able to make decisions. Um, so anyway, that's bubbled up in my head because I was like, oh my God, I remember those times. And now we just do it on our TV through Netflix. So it's no different, just, you know, kind of a different medium with which we express our indecisiveness. But yeah, and then also just one last thing before I move on. Sometimes I think if we're struggling with indecisiveness, it can be a little bit uh, easier to make really small decisions. And we're probably making small decisions every day. Um, I would encourage you to highlight those, pay attention to those and build up to making bigger decisions. So starting with the smaller and moving up from smaller being like, no, I don't actually uh, want to go with you guys to Starbucks today. Or yes, I do. Or um, yeah, I do. I do want to... I don't know, do that Zoom call or it's, it's weird now because things are all fucked up. But, you know, making small decisions. What do I want for dinner? I want X, Y, Z. Even if you share a home in a kitchen with someone else and they're like, what do you want? You tell them. Um, so those small decisions can hopefully help you build up to the bigger, more important ones um, and help you kind of build up on that confidence little by little. Okay, question number four it says, hi, Katie, could you talk a little bit about emotional flashbacks? We talked about this last week, I think. How do you know if you're having them? How intense would they be? How to recognize them in the moment and stop them? I believe that I've been having them and I would explain some of the intense emotional responses I've had over the years. I'm just wondering if you could add some insight into this. This got a lot of likes and a lot of comments on it. And hopefully I cover all of your additional comments and questions that were in the comments below this one. Um, so emotional flashbacks are just like flashbacks when we talk about them. Flashbacks usually people assume means it feels like we're right back in that experience. Like we're seeing the things and feeling the things that happened to us during that traumatic time. Um, and this, it could be like, we're looking at snapshots, like we're flipping through a photo book. Everybody's going to be different, but flashbacks are essentially just when it triggers us and we are flashed back. That's why it's called flashback. It flashes back to that traumatizing or upsetting experience. Emotional flashbacks are when, just like they sound, we have the emotional response, but none of the memory. So none of the uh, like visual memory. All we have is the emotional memory. And I know that can be really hard for people to understand. But if you've had them, you understand. It's like we feel all the feelings. And we sometimes for many of my patients and many of my viewers, you guys have told me, we're not even sure where those came from. We're not even sure what it's attached to. If we're not working um, in therapy, you know, to work through the trauma or we're like just starting it can, th these can happen and we don't really understand. We can like lash out at loved ones. We can feel really emotional and vulnerable. We can feel really scared all of a sudden. But the, um, but then that's how you kind of know that you're having them is you have these emotions that you're not sure what they're attached to. And, and I mean, how do you know if you were having them? How intense would they be? Everyone's intensity level is different. There's no way for me to tell you how intense they would be. I just know that you, most of my patients are acute. They're like, 
aware that this is happening because it the emotions are uh they're you're overcome with them just like a flashback right if we have a flashback we're like thrown back into that we're overcome with that memory so we're overcome with the emotions um and so I, the best way because they say how to recognize them in the moment and how to stop them honestly the best way is to pay attention to the last time you think this happened and i want you to try to track back to notice what triggered you because the best there are like two pro, there's a two pronged approach to managing this and the first is like learning from the past ones so if i had an emotional uh flashback what were the triggers how did it build up right all this information is helpful if we're going to prevent it from happening again um how did i feel the day before this happened or the hour before this happened what was the experience that i had so that i can track it so that i can notice if it's happening again the second prong so that's the first is just learning from what's happened in the past the second pronged approach is building up our own resiliency so this means that we do you remember the videos i did with alexa altman a good friend of mine who's a trauma specialist where she talks about like uh, expanding your resilient zone remember above the resilient zone is fight flight and below is freeze we want to make our resilient zone as big as possible so there's not that much space actually left for the fight flight and freeze so we're able to manage and in order to build that resilient zone we have to take care of ourselves this means we're getting enough sleep eating properly drinking water all the basics of you know getting uh, exercise that fits our body moving um, in some kind of way that feels good. And then there's also coping skills, right? I have that whole video, 25 coping skills you can look up if you're wanting some more ideas, but that can be like impulse logs, journaling. It can be distraction through like coloring or watching a favorite show that makes us feel good, dancing to some music that makes us feel good. Um, so we need to build up our resiliency because that's how we stop these from happening. All the while working and processing through the trauma or the um, event that is causing these flashbacks, whatever we're going back to, um, that's really that's really how we combat that and how we make sure that they don't continue to happen. And I, I guess that's really all I have to say because the emotion, the emotional flashback is just like we feel a certain feeling that we have no ties to in our current environment. Meaning, um, I feel really scared, but I'm just sitting at, at home on the couch watching my favorite show, and it doesn't really make any sense. Um, but if I think about it, maybe earlier that day, uh, I got a call from someone and it was just it, the way they talked to me was that that the way that my mom used to, let's say. And so it pulled me back to that time when I was emotionally abused or physically abused by my mother. Do you see what I mean? Like, so we'll have the the feelings of that um, without any of the actual like visual flashback. Um, yeah, I hope that clears it up because a lot of people had questions about like, how do you know if you're having them? What do they feel like? How intense are they? You just have a feeling that um, an emotion that overwhelms you that isn't we don't have any relation in our our environment in the moment. And yes, I know some of us can feel very disconnected and we can feel overrun with emotion as well, especially my patients with borderline personality disorder or just traits of BPD um, struggle with this. But if we do the story of an emotion, if we track it back, can we figure out where it came from? Because usually my BPD people can. We can see like, oh, I was supposed to get together and do that Zoom call with my friend and she canceled last minute and that triggered my fear of abandonment. And that's why I'm having this emotional response like six hours later or whatever. Um, but when it comes to these emotional flashbacks, it's more like, um, oh, I was triggered and it, it's more related to a trauma or an upset that we've experienced. Um, not so much like abandonment and things like that. But I hope that helps. If you have follow up questions, let me know. Um, ask, you know, ask it for next week. I'm happy to talk about this more. It's something that I've written about in my book that will come out, I think next fall, it's supposed to come out. Um, so yeah, because we can have emotional only flashbacks, body flashbacks, where we only feel it, it's like body memories. Um, and then there's just visual, you know, our senses are all connected to traumas and experience. And so we can have bits that aren't connected where all our senses aren't connected is what I mean. Like we're not experiencing a full experience. We just get like one sense of it. Um, and that's very normal. But as you process it through, as you uh, find the right trying to kind of trauma treatment for you, um, you'll start to feel better and it will go away. But build up that resiliency and learn from the past, the past uh, flashbacks. Okay. Question number five. Hey, Katie. Is it weird that I never feel proud of my accomplishments? I usually just think, thank God that's over and feel relieved that everything worked out. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And then um, somebody said like kind of along the same lines as this, I feel like I look to other people for validation of my accomplishments. Like my opinion of me doesn't matter, but theirs does. So those 
there are two kind of questions within this one question. So the first person's question about like, is it weird that I never feel proud of my accomplishments? I wouldn't say that it's weird. I would say that it, it um, tells us something else is going on, meaning that it's either it could be part of imposter syndrome, where it's like, I am, what do I know? I'm not good at this. And I don't think that's really what this person's experience is. But if any of you are out there feeling that way, I have videos about imposter syndrome. So you can look that up. Um, but that can when we're not really proud, because we're like, who am I? I'm stupid. This is what, you know, and then that obviously is kind of born out of a lack of self-confidence, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, um, the indecisiveness, like if we don't feel confident, then of course, we're not gonna be proud. Pride comes out of confidence. And, um, and so, you know, of course, we're not going to feel proud of our accomplishments, because we're like, I didn't really do it right. Um, however, with regard to this person, when they like think it, thank God it's over, feel relieved that everything worked out. Um, my, my sense would be that uh, we really struggle to tap in to how we feel and what's going on. It, it's almost like we and I'm just I'm hypothesizing if the person who asks the question is like, well, you're way off base. You can totally tell me that's fair. But my hypothesis is that um, we aren't even able to tap into uh, to ourselves and, and like how we feel like what's this relief coming from? Are we feeling overworked? Are we feeling are we not getting any sense of fulfillment from the work that we do? Um, was it bad in our family? I have a lot of questions, right? Was it bad in our family for us to be proud? Um, are these accomplishments not things that feel that are fulfilling for me that feel good? Are these things I don't even actually like doing? There's a lot of reasons that we cannot be proud of our accomplishments. Um, but I think that the two top ones for that I've heard of and seen is like the lack of confidence and then the inability to tap into ourselves and and know how we feel and allow ourselves to experience it. So often we're like a numbed out, almost like robotic going through the movements, which would make sense with this person's question when they're saying like, I'm just like, thank God that's over. It's like, it all worked out, Ugh. you know? Um, but it also could be that we're pushing ourselves too hard and our stress levels too much. Uh, it's so, so intense that we can't enjoy and we can't like, what do they always say? It's like, you can't actually uh, appreciate the fruit of your labor because you're too busy, like moving on. And I've had trouble with this myself where like, I don't take the breaks needed to actually like soak it up. And I don't know if that applies to you also. I don't know if you could hear Sean sneeze, but his sneezes are so loud. Um, but I don't know if you, uh, you know, can relate to that. That could be part of it because sometimes we're on to the next thing, which means we're not giving ourselves space to to soak it up, to feel it, um, to tap in, to recognize how it feels. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are kind of my thoughts on it. I think a lot of it has to do with that tapping in and and not overworking ourselves and also doing things that we feel good about um, or that we're proud of, like because we like what it what it means or what it says or what uh, what we've accomplished. You know what I mean? Like it, it could it could be tied up into a lot of those things. It could be like, I don't actually like the company I work for. I don't really like what they stand for or I don't really like this project, even though I feel good that I got it done. It, it's not really what I want to do. Um, or it could be I don't even tap into how I feel. I'm like onto the next thing, like robotically moving through life. There's a lot of reasons this could happen. Okay. And then moving into the final part of this question, kind of like the last component the other person asked, kind of along the same lines as this, I feel like I look to other people for validation of my accomplishments. Like my opinion of me doesn't matter, but theirs does. Oh my God, this is so, so common. I even struggle with this sometimes. And I think again, it's back to that self-confidence. I know I wish there was a better answer, but it's like that self-talk, that belief in ourselves that comes from a built up confidence in who we are and what we can do. Um, because if we're looking out for people to like pat us on the back and say like, you did a great job, you're amazing. Sure, it's great to get affirmations. It's great to hear from other people that they, you know, that we're doing a good job and they like what we're doing, but we shouldn't need it. We shouldn't put more weight on their uh, input and their thoughts than we do on our own. That's a very scary place to be in because we all know people can be shit out there and there's trolls people who say things that are mean. And if we put too much uh, stock in what other people think and not enough in ourselves, then we're kind of um, holding ourselves captive to the way that other people feel and how they experience things. And that can be really, really bad and really hard on us. And, um, you know, could even erode what little confidence we have. And so I would encourage you to notice yourself talk. I know it's really, really tedious and it's annoying, but I promise it can change your life. Pay attention to how you're talking to yourself and make it a kinder, happier place and slowly build up that confidence. Okay, 
Question number six, and let's get a little drink of coffee here. It's cold brew, so it's like dripping water. It's condensating. Okay. Question number six says, hey, Katie, how do you stop feeling like you only deserve bad things in life? I swear we always have themes, you guys, every week. Um, I have a lot of guilt and shame related to past abuse and PTSD, and I feel like I deserve the anxiety, depression, and isolation that I experience. I'm working on it in therapy, but I don't believe I deserve to feel better. Thanks for all you do. There were even comments on this where someone was like, yeah, when um, someone drove by and splashed a bunch of dirty water onto them, and they're like, yeah, I deserve that. Um, there's so much to this. First of all, the the guilt and shame related to PTSD so common. Again, guilt and shame are different just in case anybody's confused about this. Guilt is like, I've done something wrong and I feel bad about it. Shame is I am wrong or I'm bad. Something's wrong. I'm broken. Um, and so those are a little bit different. And I just want to throw that out there so that people can kind of figure out, discern what, what, their, what their experience is. And there's a couple of things. First, the way to obviously working um, in therapy to heal from past trauma and PTSD will slowly make this go away. However, in the moment, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to challenge these automatic thoughts because those thoughts are actually built out of our past trauma and um, because of the guilt and shame, right? Something's wrong with me. Therefore, I deserve bad things. I'm a bad person. You know, guilt, I did bad things. So I'm bad and I deserve this. We, we can automatically believe that we only deserve the bad things. And if a good thing happens, we're just like, oh, I'm just waiting for a bad thing to happen. Or we can even sabotage it so that the good thing doesn't, uh, isn't happening for very long. Like I've had so many patients, I cannot even tell you who had like some kind of good situation, like uh, a good job offer or getting, uh, finally finding that perfect apartment with a nice roommate only to find out that they like turned in the paperwork late and lost the apartment or um, got the job and then like didn't show up or was, you know, there's like things that we'll do to sabotage ourselves because we want to prove again that we only deserve the bad things in life. So I would encourage you to notice when you're thinking this and challenge it um, and then look for evidence to support a different way of thinking. Like every time we think, oh, I only deserve the bad things in life. We need to challenge that and be like, uh, you know, is it possible? Could I be open to bridge statement? Could I be open to the, the fact or the thought that maybe some good things could happen and they wouldn't, it wouldn't be that bad. Like I could, I could do it. It'd be okay. Like, could we think about that? Could we maybe be open to the, that possibility? Again, it's hard to go from negative to positive. So if we believe we only deserve bad things, we can't say, Oh, I believe that I only deserve good things. We're not going to believe that. Um, and so it might be like, I'm open to the possibility that I could, I could have good, some good things could happen and, and that could be okay. We don't have to even say I deserve it. It could be okay. I could sit with it. And I would also be curious, like one of the homework I would have you do is like journaling about, um, cause I, I think it's the best way to take judgment out of our own treatment and our own recovery is to just be curious instead of uh past judgment, right. To make a, an assumption, let's just be curious. So what would it mean if something good did happen? Is it, does it make us nervous to have something good happen or, or what makes that so uncomfortable? Hmm. Are we uncomfortable? Maybe we're not. Why, you know. I would just be very curious, ask a lot of questions, um, consider those things. And uh, yeah, it'll hopefully pull you out of that. Because my real belief is that this is just born out of the trauma and the past abuse. And it's part of that guilt and shame spiral, because we think something's wrong with us. And then we think that we are deserving of only shitty things. Um, and so I think part of it would be, uh, you know, trying to see ourselves in a different light like imagining that we uh, don't have depression or uh, anxiety or aren't isolated and we feel good. Like, what would that look like? You could even be like, uh, live in a dream of that, like write a story. What would it be like if we didn't have those things? And um, and what would that mean to you? How would that feel? Because I have a feeling that'd be very uncomfortable, but I'm curious about that. Are we, are we just worried that like, it'll all go away at one minute and someone will hurt us? Are we, do we just feel like, um, we never did anything good to deserve it. And then I want you to challenge that thought with different facts. Um, anyway, there's a lot to work on that, but I just want you to know that it, a lot of it comes out of that, like self-talk confidence because of the guilt and shame you're experiencing. It's kind of breeding this feeling. Um, and as you work on the trauma and past abuse, it will go away. Um, but we just have to challenge it and we have to be curious about it. No judgments. There's no room for judgment here. It's just time to be curious. Okay. 
Question number seven. Hi, Katie. How do you have difficult conversations without crying? Even when the conversation is completely respectful and calm, whenever I have a difficult conversation, it feels like my body just reacts by becoming tearful and my throat choking up despite my mind feeling logical and clear. It's hard to get my point across when I get emotional and it makes communicating with those around me more difficult. I think that crying may be one of my defense mechanisms. I'm quick to cry at happy things too, but I want to learn how to control my body responses when having hard talks. Thanks. Okay. I have, I, I used to really struggle with this and I'm just going to give you, so I'll give you my personal experience slash advice and what's worked for me. And then we'll talk about it in, in a more full way so that if that's not, doesn't work for you, there's other options. So I used to cry all the time too. Even when I was angry, if someone did something that was hurtful to me and I went to like confront them and, and be like, I don't like you talking to me this way, or I don't, you know, that was really hurtful. I cry. And I always hated it. Because even if I'm mad, I'm crying. And I'm like, don't let this thing don't look at these tears and make you think that I'm like weak, or that, you know, I'm letting you off the hook. I'm angry. It would just really piss me off. It'd make me more angry than I cry more. And what I learned in my own therapy is that, um, that uh, it's not just a defense mechanism, but the crying was really my only way to express the emotion that I felt because I wasn't allowing myself to express it any other way. I wasn't making time to express the anger healthfully or to vent what I was feeling, um, which is why when I'm in therapy, if, if I've taken a break for a while, when I come back for the first like two months, I just cry in almost every session. And then all of a sudden, um, well, I guess that's a lie. Last time I was only in for like three or four sessions and I stopped crying. But what I'm saying is the best thing for me was finding ways to healthfully express emotion so that it didn't come out in times when I don't want it to. And that would be my guess as to what's happening with you is that we have this buildup. We don't give ourselves any um, uh, time or even like accept the fact that we have emotions and in making space for us to feel them. Um, I really think that, you know, if you make some time to feel them and you allow yourself the opportunity to journal, to vent, to talk to people about it, to cry in therapy, and you doing all of that, like offloading, it will be less likely for it to come out in difficult conversations. And then the second thing that kind of helped me is like practicing difficult conversations so that the first time I'm saying things, it's not like in front of someone because I might get choked up. And so, um, and so that's, you know, practicing kind of made it better. So that there was, I was kind of like letting the steam out of the pot a little bit. Um, but so that's what, that's what worked for me mostly is just venting the emotion and practicing ahead of time. But then there's a second component and something else that might be beneficial is like recognizing what it is. Like when you're having a difficult conversation, like be curious. I, I would ask yourself questions like, why is it that I feel tearful? Do I think it's a defense mechanism or do I think it's because I'm really hurt by something or I really do feel sad or I don't like confrontation because that can tell us kind of what we need to do to manage ahead of time or to what I would call, you know, like set yourself up for success or or plan ahead, right? We can do different things depending on what purpose this serves for us because it's it's happening for a reason. I know we tell ourselves the thing that sucks about emotions is uh, when we're not comfortable with them, we often tell ourselves like, uh, you know, this is me. I'm just being ridiculous. This is me being just overly emotional for no reason, right? We can have all of those thoughts. And the truth is it's happening for a reason. We just maybe aren't aware because we're not tapping in to figure out what it is. What is that reason? Um, and so be curious, figure this out, think about it. Why is it that that makes you so uncomfortable? And I'd even kind of maybe try to link it to like past experience. Okay. So how did your parents navigate difficult conversations? Were they, uh, totally waspy, meaning they weren't comfortable having conversations or arguments or, um, difficult discussions? Was everything swept under the rug? Well, then of course you're going to cry. It's like, there's no, you don't have a healthy way to express that kind of feeling. It was never shown to you. So this is all new. So we're learning on the fly. Um, you know, or when your parents, when you tried to have a difficult conversation growing up, did people shout and scream until everybody cried? I don't know. Like, be curious about it. Think about it. Because once we kind of know where this comes from for you, then we can like challenge it or t uh, try to think in a new way. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of just... Uh, I, I don't know if I would consider it as much a defense mechanism as just the way that we're coping with all we feel because we haven't allowed ourselves the space to cope or understand the emotional experience otherwise, right? Like we're not really being open and non-judgmental about this. Um, yeah. And that would also explain why you're quick to cry happy things too. Any emotion is overwhelming um, because we're not really, we're always full of emotion. I would actually even be curious if this person like cries 
um, watching like commercials or sad TVs or even Instagrams of animals. I would be curious about that. I'm asking you, I wonder, um, because then the, then the irony after I finish this question, that lasts a little bit, but I want to learn how to control my body response, um, how my body responds when having heart talks. I, yes, but controlling makes it sound like, oh, I can just stop this from happening. And the truth is we have to find other outlets where we allow ourselves to express all that we feel. I would assume that we're very, uh, tense and locking it up and stuffing it down. Um, and so yeah, finding ways to vent it could be helpful. Okay. Question number eight. It says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing great. I am. I hope you're doing great as well. Can you talk about being unable to express feelings and rationalizing everything back to the themes? You guys, it's all these themes. Okay. I find it hard to talk about some things at times and I end up rationalizing everything. That's a defense mechanism. This happens to me specifically in therapy and I think it might be because I get ashamed of what I want to talk about. Can you give advice on how to combat this? Thanks for everything you do. Um, rationalizing is one of the cognitive distortions. If you, I don't know if any of you have done CBT therapy or read about cognitive behavioral therapy, but CBT is like um, all uh, the crux of it is the fact that we have these um we have these cognitive distortions and they affect the way that we see and interact with the world. One of those cognitive distortions being rationalizing. And so I think uh, it is a defense mechanism. And so what we have to do is, I mean, there's a, a quite a few options. So I'm just going to give you some of the CBT techniques to help with this, because I really think that, you know, you can pick and choose the ones that work best for you. So number one is you can let it play out. You can play out the emotion or the, the rationalization to the end. So if we play out that story, um, I think they call it, I forget what the term is. I think it's called like uh, play the story till the end uh, or see it through to the end, something like that. So, okay, when we rationalize, so if we, um, it's kind of like letting it play out. Okay, so if that's true, so, okay, so if, you know, I felt this way because of that and then that makes it okay, like what does that mean? Like just letting it, letting your brain think it all the way through. And, and questioning it. Okay, so then what? Okay, if that's true, then what? Then what that? Okay, well, if that happened, okay, what? And then at the end, when you're like, you know, well, it just makes sense, you know, like, I, I guess I feel this way because of this. Okay, is that helpful? Like, okay, what's the end goal of that? Like, did that play out in a way that was helpful and beneficial or not? You can just be curious. It's a good way to allow instead of trying to stop the cognitive distortion immediately, we can allow it to play out and see where it gets us. Oftentimes, especially when it comes to worries. It doesn't sound like this is the case with this person, but for anybody out there who like catastrophizes, let's say, if you play out the worry to the end, you sometimes realize it's not that scary in the first place. Um, but rationalization, it, you might see that like, well, hey, that, but then that leaves me feeling really invalidated. And then I'd feel like I'm not getting anything out of therapy and it's actually not beneficial. So in a way, it's like we have to prove to ourselves that like this cognitive distortion isn't helpful for us, okay? So letting that play out is one. Um, then there's another of like, um, asking, being curious about it. I love being curious about things that we do, right? There's always a purpose. We're not just doing this because it, uh, you know, I don't know, for no reason. There's a reason. It, it helps us in some way. It makes us feel good in some way. And so when it comes to rationalizing, what would it mean if we weren't rational? What would it mean if we were emotional? I'm curious. Let's, let's write about that. Let's think about that. What does being emotional mean to you? What if, like the person in the question before, you were overcome with emotion and cried all through session. What would that mean? Or in front of someone else? Are we scared of that? Is vulnerability something we're not open to doing? Or what would that mean if we were vulnerable? You see what I mean? We have to be very curious um, as to why we end up rationalizing everything and like what purpose it served. Um, because it sounds like, because you said in specifically in therapy, it might be because I get ashamed of what I want to talk about. Um, and I think part of then the way to kind of push through and combat this is then to, uh, again, okay, so sorry, going back to the being ashamed of what you want to talk about, I'd like you to play that out. Let's play that to the end. Okay, so if I do share what I want to talk about in therapy, what could happen? Okay, then what? So if the therapist says that, then then what? Then how will I feel about it? Okay, well, then what can I do? Like, I want you to play it out till the end. What's the worst case scenario? And then challenge that worst case scenario with like, the most positive, perfect scenario. And then the truth is that most likely it'll be somewhere in the middle. So what would that look like? What's a pretty balanced view of us sharing things in session and talking about what we want to talk about? Be curious. I know this sounds 
maybe not as helpful to some of you because you're like, but I want more tools and techniques or I want an answer or I want more advice about this. A lot of our answers, like that's the cool thing about being human is we have all the answers. We just have to find a way to access them and being curious instead of judgmental gets us so much farther. And so if this is happening all the time, we have to just be curious about it. Why? Um, you know, why is it happening? What purpose does it serve? And if I did the other thing, then what? And that that kind of helps us um, see it from a different view. And then then the final kind of tip I would have is um, challenging the rational thoughts with facts. Because rationalization means that we like over-rationalize. Uh, like there's no room for emotion. There's no room for question. There's no room for, uh, it, I don't know, it could be this, maybe not. It's like, no, 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 I do this because of this. And it makes sense because this is this and this. It's like very logical. Okay, well, that happened. So then this is why I did that. Okay, but but let's challenge that. But, but that. And that doesn't encompass all the things that I'm feeling, you know? Okay, so I'm rationalizing that away. But is that validating to me? Let's challenge that. Do I feel validated? What would help me feel more validated? We have to challenge these rational thoughts because yes, rationalization helps in some ways and it can keep us, uh, it's a coping skill, right? It can keep us doing something. Um, for a certain amount of time, but it, at, at, when it comes to therapy, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to the relationship we have with ourselves, rationalizing prevents us from growing, right? It it keeps us held in this like, oh yeah, well that happened and then I did this and it wasn't the best and you know, we're just very logical, unemotive. We're gonna have to tap into our emotions. So challenging that, uh, checking the facts and then uh, I guess another one could even be to do those uh, feelings charts and note the feelings that you're feeling every day because we probably don't know. Um but one of them could be ashamed because um, you already said that that could be why. Um, yeah. And then tapping into those feelings, being able to identify two or three each day. Um, and then you could even write, turn those into sentences. I've talked about that in the past, how you take the feeling word and then you turn it into a sentence um, without using that feeling word. So like, let's say the feeling word is excitement. Then the sentence could be, you know, it feels like bubbles in my stomach and I almost can't stop myself from constantly smiling, you know, that would be a way to describe that. So um, yeah, those are I know I'm all over the place. And that's a lot of different tools and techniques. But hopefully, at least one, if not more resonate with you and are helpful in your process. But yes, rationalizing very is very common. It is a defense mechanism. And it's just a way that we try to, to distance ourselves emotionally, so we can push through things. Um, But now it's holding you back, right? So we got to stop it. Okay, question number nine says, Dear Katie, Intimate relationships have always been a trigger for me, probably because of the attachment system that it activates. Of course, when things happened, I might relapse and it's like I've wasted the progress I've made in therapy. Thus, I've been really reluctant to get into any intimate relationships for fear that it will destabilize me again. I also don't want to burden one more person with my own shit. I wonder if intimate relationships can ever be supportive and helpful when I'm struggling with attachment issues. How do I decide if I'm ready to be in a relationship? So, the truth about this is that we need to get into therapy and we need to start figuring out our attachment style because we all have different attachment styles. And yes, there are four main attachment styles, but there's combinations of both and we can toggle between one or the other. Um, so know that, you know, you might not 100% be uh, anxious, avoidant, you might have another style as well. Um, and getting into therapy and trying to uh, reparent ourselves, unfortunately, that reparenting is what is required for us to heal from attachment-based uh, trauma and upset. Uh, there's also trauma, like uh, attachment-based therapists that specialize in this kind of work, um, as well as trauma specialists and things like that, depending on where things, you know, how it happened for you. But I would encourage you to do that work before trying to get into a relationship. It's not that you can't get into a relationship, but if you aren't in a relationship, I would just kind of wait only because, first of all, it's so triggering. And we need to prepare you. We need to set you up for success. We can't just like jump into the deep end. We want to make sure that we have some skills to help us soothe our system, calm down. We need to have ways that we can um, speak those good parent messages, right? I've talked about this when it comes to like emotionally neglectful parents. We need like the good, good mother messages or good father messages. Things that we didn't hear in childhood, like I see you, you're important. I love you. You know, I accept you. There's all sorts of things like that. And so if, if we aren't prepared to manage that and be able to give that love and uh, soothing, uh, being able to have tools to soothe our system, we can't, when we get into a relationship, it's going to be triggering. And then we're going to try, 
we're like going to be grappling with it. And like you said, it can destabilize you. You feel like you've quote unquote wasted the progress you've made in therapy. So I really think that like moving forward with that in therapy, um, coming up with tools and techniques and being able to better recognize your triggers and what that is and how we can use that information to help us better heal and manage the emotions that come up. Um, that's all helpful information. So take all the information you have. Let's help you prepare for it. And then once you feel like you're able to, like your resilient zone has gotten bigger, right? Kind of what I was talking about earlier is like if that resilient zone has grown and it's larger, then we're less likely to be thrown off. So then if you want to engage in a relationship, by all means, go for it. Once we feel like we've, we've successfully managed a couple of triggers, um, I would even encourage you to like slowly engage in relationships and see how you do. Let's not jump all the way in. Again, we're going to like, instead of jumping in the deep end, we're going to get in the shallow end and slowly walk that way, right? So move slowly so that you feel like you're able to manage all that can come up for you when in a relationship like that. Um, and I, hopefully, you know, your therapist is offering some tools and techniques. I find DBT to also be helpful when it comes to this kind of work, attachment work, because um, because DBT was kind of formulated for those with borderline personality disorder. And a huge component of that is fear of abandonment, which can be part of attachment. Um, a lot of the like opposite action, story of an emotion um, can be really helpful too. So and back burner can also be helpful. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's my advice for that. And then there was an add on in the comments. And someone said, if I felt like I could trust nobody, how would I be able to get past that and be able to put in the effort to form meaningful relationships, romantic or not? I think part of it is um, we have to feel okay as ourselves before trying to engage in a relationship, kind of like I'm saying we prepare ahead of time. So we feel like we can't trust anybody. We're going to have to challenge that blanket belief that we have with other facts. And then we're going to have to figure out what people or what characteristics do we look for in people who are trustworthy and what characteristics are red flags to us. And those are things we're going to have to talk out in therapy, journal about, be curious about, right? Again, going back to that natural curiosity, instead of just assuming and agreeing that, yes, no one's trustworthy, I can't be in a relationship with anybody because they're just going to fuck me over at some one point or another, we have to challenge that with facts. Check your facts and then, you know, Put together some lists of, of qualities you look for in people. Know that you can slowly engage in relationships. It's actually much healthier for relationships to just build over time naturally versus just jumping all the way in. And so take that time to, to get to see how they interact with other people and how do they engage when you tell them something that's a little bit personal. Um, you know, are, do they respond in the way that we need and that we've hoped? And are we doing that for them, right? It's give and take. And how are we um, engaging in that relationship being supportive? too. So anyway, I hope that that helps. Um, I know that it can be really hard, um, but we have to prepare ahead of time. We have to have ways to soothe our system and kind of be healthfully curious about our process and why we feel the way we feel. Okay. Question number 10. This is another good question. It says, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, do I need to like my psychiatrist? I don't know why it just made me crack up. It says, I have a therapist who I really like, but I'm not a fan of my psychiatrist. I trust him and the medication he has prescribed has been helpful but I dread our appointments. I mean, it's not terrible. I just don't click with him. Is it worth changing? Everyone seems to not be taking new clients and mine is very highly regarded. Oh my God. I have quite a few colleagues of mine that my patients just hate them. I love them as like a, as a colleague and friend, but they're just different with my patients and they're not very warm. And I always try to warn them. I'm like, listen, you know, he or she, they're great at their job. They do a good job. Uh, come in with your list of signs and symptoms and how the medication is doing for you um, and know that they're just going to be very dry. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of psychiatrists do not have a good bedside manner, meaning they're not warm. They don't make us feel hurt all the time. We don't click with them because they can be very cold and not attached. It's just, it's uncomfortable. Um, and I wish, I would love for you to like your psychiatrist. Okay, I'm just putting that out there. But for the purpose of, so you love your therapist. I think that's great. But for the purpose of your psychiatrist, if none are taking new clients, I would stick, stay with him and keep looking. I would continue to hunt for another one. Um, but the main reasons that you need them is that they, you know, you trust them and the medication has been helpful and they check in on you, right? It's been, a, been a, it's been beneficial to you to see them. And so really, if you can, if you can like stick with it and it's okay, I would do that. However, Stick with it and look and see if someone's taking new clients, you know, like keep searching around. There's nothing wrong with switching. Ideally, I'd like all of us to like our treatment team. But trust me, I live in a world too where a lot of my patients do not feel that way. 
They do not like their psychiatrist. It is not comfortable. Um, and so anyway, um, I guess those are my thoughts. You, you don't have to like your psychiatrist, but it, it's beneficial if you do. But as long as they work well with you and your therapist and you feel like you're getting the help that you're getting, um, usually only have to see them every month or sometimes every two or three months. Some of my patients, once they're stabilized, only go every three months. So like, is it worth it? I don't know. Um, I'm just talking it out with you. There's no like right or wrong answer. If it was your therapist, I would say you need to like them. You need to feel like you click. But psychiatrists nowadays see my patients mostly for like 10, 15 minutes. It's like in and out what they call med management. Um, and so I don't really think it's that necessary anymore for you to like them. Um, but I would keep looking like a lot of people in the comments said, oh, I didn't like mine. And I just kept seeing them or saw, uh, you know, a psych nurse for a while until I could find someone better. Um, you can do that too. There, there's nothing wrong with an either decision. Um, but really the help that you need to get from a psychiatrist you're getting. So I would at least stick with them while you look to see someone else, um, someone else. But because you dread your appointments and everything, I, I think that you might want to switch. Um, because most of my patients are just like, oh, I just don't like them, but it's fine. You know, so you have to decide your level of comfort or discomfort that's appropriate and, um, look for someone else, you know, but if you can't find someone else, at least you have someone you trust and the medication's working. Um, but I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts too. Do you like your psychiatrist? And I, you know, maybe my patients are particular or, um, maybe I'm wrong and you should like them and feel connected like you click. Um, yeah, let me know. Okay. Final question. Question number 11 says, hello, Katie. How can we deal with the grief that is never ending? Oh, I feel this. I have been grieving the emotional neglect I've experienced in my childhood, but I feel like it never ends and it creates resistance in therapy, even though I'm taking antidepressants. I feel very stuck and really, really exhausted, both mentally and physically. Do you have any suggestions? Thank you so much for everything. Um, and then there's an add-on in the comments um, where they said, what would you tell someone who suffers and cannot afford psychiatric prescription? I may end up doing this if my sadness gets worse. Okay. So... Dealing with grief that's never ending. I don't even like that phrase because it's not never ending. It just feels overwhelming. I, I prefer the term overwhelming because it will end. So a gr grieving the emotional neglect um, that you experienced in childhood said it feels like it never ends and creates resistance in therapy. So it's okay to grieve. It's okay to take your time on it. Um, and I feel like... So often, I don't know what it is, but lately, a lot of my Patreon patrons that I've been chatting with are talking about how they wish they were moving more quickly in treatment. I should be doing more. I've been in EMDR for three weeks and I haven't made as much progress as I thought I would. And I actually feel like I'm going backwards. And we just have this expectation. We've set these like random expectations or had assumptions about what treatment's supposed to look like for us or what our recovery process should be. And it's holding us back. And so that's kind of my first knee jerk reaction with this was consider what your expectations are. And talk about this in therapy. Talk about the fact that you feel like this grief is just never ending. You feel like it's not getting any better. And allow yourself the space to, to talk about it. Because that in and of itself might be what's holding you back. It might be, um, you know, maybe we have some false beliefs about our, our um, like childhood and what that meant. And maybe we have some shame associated with that. Maybe we have some assumptions or expectations that aren't reasonable for us in our, our recovery process. Uh, talk about that in in therapy um, because there is a time like grief is weird. Okay. And I just want to put this out there in case anybody feels like their grief is never ending as well. Grief isn't linear or A to B to C to D done. Boom. It's not like that. Grief is in my experience, when we first start the grieving process, it's fucking horrible for like, for me, when my dad passed away, it's probably like a good month, maybe two where it was just shit. And I was tired. I was stressed and I was easily tearful. I was just maxed out. I was going to therapy twice a week and still feeling terrible. So it was bad for a little while. And then it got better. And then all of a sudden it'd be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal, right? But then all of a sudden I have bad days where like I stumble across a card that he gave me or my dad made me these hoop earrings with like fishing lures. That's so my dad. And I found them one day in my jewelry box and just cried for hours. So you can have periods where you're, you're super, super in the shit It'll take you a little while to get out of that, but you have like, can't go around it. Can't go under it. You got to go through it, right? Can't go over it. We got to go through it. It's like the going on a bear hunt song. Um, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, I've it, it's, it's an old song from ch uh, childhood. It's like going on a bear hunt. You can look it up. Anyway, you got to go through it. So you got to let yourself feel that shit. And then there'll be periods where it's okay. And that's when we can really dig into the other work that I'm sure we need to do in therapy. 
Um, but then there'll be bad days too. And I don't want you to judge that and think that that means we're back at square one. Something that you might want to do in therapy if, if this resonates with you is like talking to your therapist about what progress you've made since you've seen them. Because my guess is you've made more progress than you realize. And that might also challenge that never ending belief that we have that is not true. Because um, grief does end, but it, it hangs along, hangs around longer if we don't allow ourselves to feel it and experience it and process it. Um, and also on another note, because you said you are taking antidepressants, I don't know if they're helping you or not. I have a lot of patients who take antidepressants that don't find them beneficial. They need to try a different one or up the dosage. So I talked to your doctor too, if you still feel like you're, you're feeling symptoms of depression, um, even though you're on the antidepressant, because the goal is, you know, a symptom reduction, but well, that's not the goal, but that's like what we want is symptom reduction. But the goal is complete remission of symptoms, meaning those symptoms don't exist anymore. So, you know, checking in on that. And then uh, feeling very stuck and really, really exhausted, both mentally and physically. I think sometimes in therapy, we, we, we all experience this. And instead of trying to uh, talk about the thing that we're struggling with, let's talk about the feeling of being stuck and what that's bringing up for us. And that, in my experience, opens up a whole nother conversation and kind of weigh in to the difficult topic. And we'll be surprised how much more we move forward. It's like a sneaky way in. So I would talk about it in therapy. Be, um, you know, be curious about it. Talk with your therapist about why you think you feel stuck and what's really happening. And you're feeling exhausted and what we can do to manage that. Because I think there is some, or there are, I guess, some helpful key learnings hidden in there. And then for that add-on in the comments, what would I tell someone who suffers and cannot afford psychiatric prescription? I really think uh, therapy is the best way we can do it. And journaling about what we feel, giving ourselves the time to grieve and to feel sad and to feel overwhelmed. And then like, this sounds weird, but sometimes I'll just give myself like an hour where I'm like, I'm just gonna let myself wallow. And when that hour is up, I've got to get up and I got to do other things. I can't just wallow all day and I'll set a timer. And I know that doesn't work for everyone, but you can get to the point where you allow yourself to feel it. And you're like, you know what? Now I have to get up. I have to do the things I got to do. I can't lay here all day. And sure, there are days where we can just lay. I don't want you to think that that's not ever, like that's never okay. That's not what I'm trying to get across. I'm just saying that we can set aside time in our days to allow ourselves to feel sad, to feel overwhelmed, to feel to feel just shitty. But then we have to pick ourselves up and go throughout our day. Um, it's kind of that like back burner technique or opposite action in DBT. I use a lot of those skills personally because I find them really helpful. So yeah, those are my thoughts. I hope that that's helpful. Let's challenge that never-ending belief because it's not true. Um, and then let's talk about, you know, feeling stuck and what that means and have your therapist tell you all the progress you've made. That might give you some perspective too. Um, and know that we all go through these periods too where we just feel stuck, like we're just not getting forward. We're not moving forward, getting to the point where we want to get. And yes, it can be really hard. And yes, it can be really uncomfortable, um, but it does get better. Just stick with it. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. Um, again, next week we'll have a special guest. So stay tuned and look out in the community tab for me um, asking for your questions for this particular person, because I think it'll be kind of fun, be something a little different. We haven't had a guest on yet. So um, you guys will have to let me know what you think about that, if it's something you want me to continue or not. Um, I just thought it'd be kind of fun to get other people's perspectives, right? I kind of get sick of hearing from myself. So maybe that will give us all uh, you know, a fresh set of eyes and a fresh conversation. Um, take care of yourselves. I love you. Have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.